0: My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so good to be with you this morning. Maybe you're newer to Genesis, and if that is true, as Steve said, we are in a series that's called Planted. It's actually a series that uh, is going to take us all the way through 2021. We're reading through the entire Bible together as a church. And so if you are new, we want to invite you to jump in with us. We're using an app called the Read Scripture app to do that, and uh, I would encourage you to download that. Uh, I would also encourage you not to try to get all the way caught up this week, but uh, maybe just jump in where we are. We're right in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy right now, and we'd love for you to, to join us as we uh, move through Scripture together. Uh, well, like I said, we've made it to the book of Deuteronomy, and this book is written uh, right after Israel exits their 40 years of wandering in the desert. You, uh, if you've been with us or you know the biblical narrative, you know that God chose a man named Abraham through whom he would start a new nation, and through that nation would ultimately come the Messiah, the one who would save the world from sin and death. Uh, Abraham had a son who had a son who had many sons, and those sons became the nation of Israel, and Israel really grew up in Egypt, and it started out as a a friendly uh, kind of a kind of a affair, and eventually turned out to be something not as friendly as the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrew people and uh, put them into forced labor. But God, because he is a gracious and loving God, he heard his people's cries for mercy and he rescued them from Egypt. He brought them out using a man named Moses for his purposes, and Moses has led the people out uh, from Egypt, out into the desert. They're on their way to the land that God has promised them. And the people grumbled against God, and they said, you know what, we'd rather be slaves in Egypt than free out here in the desert. And so God gave them what they wanted, and uh, he essentially said, you know what, you're going you're gonna to stay in the desert, you're not going to go to the promised land. And so 40 years passed until all of those folks who rebelled against God eventually died off. That whole generation died off and was never uh, permitted to enter into the promised land. And so where we find uh, the nation at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, like I say, the the wicked uh, generation has died off. Moses himself is looking at the end of his own life, and he knows that that's coming. And because of that, he has some things that he wants to say to the nation of Israel. Before he dies and before they enter into the promised land, he has some things that that he wants to put on their hearts. And so the book of Deuteronomy is really a collection of Moses' final words. It's a series of speeches that he gave to Israel. And one of the overarching themes that you'll find in the book of Deuteronomy is a call to love God. And this is actually really interesting and really significant because... The first time in the Old Testament that you find this command to love God is in the book of Deuteronomy. It's five books into the Bible, but it's the first time you find a call to love God. And that, that call, that command, it comes up throughout Uh, The book. So I want to spend our time this morning looking at the first instance of this command to love God. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn there. Deuteronomy 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we have some on the table in the back of the room. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those and keep it as your own. It's our gift to you. But again, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, Deuteronomy 6 contains a portion of scripture that is referred to as the Shema. How many of you are familiar with the term Shema? Have you heard that before? A few hands around the room. Well, the the Shema or Shema is the Hebrew word that's translated as hear, which is the first word of verse 4. And so here's what it says in uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It says, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, how many of you are familiar with that passage? Sure, several more hands go up. Just didn't realize it was called the Shema. But this passage, the Shema, became central to the Jewish faith and to Jewish life. In fact, faithful Jews still pray this prayer, the Shema, twice daily. They pray it in the morning and they pray it in the evening. And one of the resources that I read preparing for this message was a book by a a woman named Lois Verberg. And the book's called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. And I'm going to refer to to this book and and to Verberg throughout this message. But if you're looking for more research into some of the Hebrew background of these things, this is an excellent read. I'd highly recommend it. But she includes in this book uh, a story about a Jewish rabbi that really helps to illustrate the prominence of the Shema for the Jewish people. Uh, She talks about a man named Rabbi Eliezer Silver. And after World War II, uh, Rabbi Silver traveled to Europe to help Holocaust survivors. And part of his work involves searching for hundreds of Jewish children who had been placed in orphanages by their parents with the hope that they would be spared of the horrors of the concentration camps. Well, many of these uh, parents, the parents of these children in the orphanages, they were killed during World War II, and so no one was left to come and claim them. Well, Rabbi Silver discovered that the folks operating these orphanages were often unable or sometimes even unwilling to identify which kids were the the Jewish kids and, and which ones weren't. So he came up with a solution to identify the kids himself. And he would stand in front of all of the children at the orphanage, and he would begin reciting the Shema. And when the Jewish children heard the words, they immediately started crying out for their mothers. And it immediately identified them as the kids Rabbi Silver was looking for. Clearly nothing could erase the memory of a mother putting them to bed every night with the Shema on her lips. What a powerful story of the significance of this passage of scripture in the Jewish life. So Moses begins with that Hebrew word, shema, listen to what I'm about to say and then obey these words. And that call to listen and to obey is still important for followers of Jesus today. I heard uh, a pastor named Francis Chan use an illustration about this one time, and he told about a child whose room was just an absolute disaster just a complete mess. Parents, I'm sure none of you can relate with that, but uh, the kid's room was just a a disaster zone. And so the dad went and said, listen, I want you to clean this room up and uh, I'm going to be back in an hour. And when I get back, I want it to be clean, clean your room. Okay. And so the dad left and then came back an hour later and he could see that nothing had happened. I mean, the room was as messy as it was when he had been there before, but the kid said uh, to the dad, listen, dad, I want you to know something. I want you to know that I heard exactly what you said. You said, clean your room. I wrote it down. I actually wrote it right, right here in my journal. Clean your room. Right here it is. And then I took those words and I put them in my heart. I memorized them. And I don't even have to look now. Watch. Clean your room. I didn't even look at it. I can just say it. And beyond that, uh, I learned how to say the command in different languages. I can say it to you in Spanish, and I can say it to you in German. And then I started doing a word study on what it means to clean. And you are not going to believe what I found out. It's fascinating. Let me ask you something. Do you think that the father is going to be impressed by all of that? Do you think he's going to care at all what the child has done with the command? Of course not, because the child didn't do the one necessary thing, right? The child clearly heard, but he did not obey. And parents, if you have to tell your kids something more than once, chances are they don't have a hearing problem, they have an obedience problem. I can remember when our kids were young, and Beth Ann used to always say, even delayed obedience is disobedience. And the same thing is true for us today as followers of Jesus. James actually addresses this in the New Testament when he says, don't be simply hearers of the word. You've got to be doers of the word. Hear and obey. We've got to actually do what it says. And listen, I hope you are reading God's word. I hope you're reading it with us. I hope when you come to something that you don't understand that you look it up and you research it or you reach out to, to someone who you know is a little bit farther along in their journey with Christ and, They can help you understand it. I I hope you're journaling and and doing all of those things. But if, if in the end that's all you're doing and you never put it into action, what good is it? We've got to hear it and obey. And I want you to think about this in the context of Deuteronomy 6. Again, Moses knew what was ahead for Israel. He knew that they were about to enter into this foreign land, and he knew that, that once they got there, there were going to be all kinds of temptations to turn away from God and to put their trust in other things. That's why he starts with Shema, listen, obey this. And then he says these words, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that word one in Hebrew is the word "ihad," "ihad," and it, it means single or alone, it means unique. It tells us who God is. He is the one true God. He is the God who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. But equal to the task of getting the people out of Egypt was the task of getting Egypt out of people, his people. Because Egypt was the land of multiple false gods, right? Egypt had a god for everything. They had the sun god, and they had the moon god, and the sky god, and the land god, and the harvest god, and all of these different gods that they worshipped and they bowed down to. And Moses is is imploring the people, and he's saying, listen, we've spent these last 40 years in the desert trying to, to show you, trying to teach you, God was, was drawing you to only trust in him, put all of your, your trust and all of your hope in him. And because he knows that as they enter into Canaan, they're gonna be confronted once again with, with other false gods, Baal and Asherah and Chemosh. You're gonna read about these false gods as we move into to Joshua and Judges. And these are, these are detestable, demonic uh, Canaanite gods that required everything from sexual perversion to child sacrifice. I mean, just terrible stuff. And, and Moses is saying, when you move into the land, don't join them, don't be a, a part of any of that stuff. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Give your allegiance fully to Him. And for you and I today, as followers of Jesus, this is this is still true. We are commanded to put all of our trust in Christ alone. And while we might not be influenced or uh, tempted by Baal or or by Chemosh or any of these false gods, we still feel the pull to put our trust in other things, don't we? In his book titled Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller describes what a modern-day false god looks like, and he says that it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, that is a counterfeit God. And sadly, even some who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior often bow down to these lesser gods, the God of of money, the God of relationships, the God of success and power. We sacrifice our energy and our resources chasing after these things And these things easily take the center place in our hearts and Christ is pushed off to the side. But Hudson Taylor famously said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He will not share his throne with any lesser God. And so Moses begins, again, just by imploring the people, don't forget what God did in Egypt. Don't forget that those lesser gods had no power over him whatsoever. Don't forget what, we've, what he's been teaching us in the desert these 40 years. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how should we respond? Well, that's what verse 5 tells us. Moses says this. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's talk about love for just a minute, shall we? Because we live in a, in a world and a culture that is completely obsessed with love. Right? We, we think about falling in love, we're looking for our one true love, we want to find love. Uh, we watch love stories, we listen to love songs, and sometimes they leave us love sick. Other times we found love, but then we fall out of love because when we talk about love, what we really mean is a feeling. And so when the feeling is gone, then it wasn't really love or it's not love anymore, and so we can just walk away. And the English language actually isn't very helpful here because it only gives us one word for love. It's the word love. And yet I might say that I love my wife and I love my kids, but I also love steak. And that's weird because the way I feel and think about my wife and my kids, my family, is completely different than the way I I feel about a piece of meat. But again, the English word, uh, the English only gives me one word to express that. Well, Hebrew is different. The language of the Old Testament is Hebrew, and, and there are actually several different Hebrew words that all get translated into this one English word as love. But the Hebrew words actually describe different things. There's there's a Hebrew word that describes a a kind of love that's brotherhood. There's a word for intimacy. There's a word for for sexual love. There's a word for self-sacrificing love and steadfastness. And so in Hebrew, you have different words to describe how you relate to your wife and how you feel about food or sports or whatever else you might love. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Hebrew word that's translated as love is this word. It's the word ahava. And ahava is not simply an emotion. Uh, emotions are part of it, but they're not primary to it. Ahava involves faithfulness. It involves obedience. It's, it's a love that takes action. And Verberg talks about this in her book. She says this. It says, when the Israelites were commanded to love God, we can read it as not so much about passionate feelings as much as an utter commitment to loyalty toward God, the one they obeyed. And it's not that, that those passionate feelings are, are wrong or inappropriate, uh, but with Ahava they aren't primary. What drives Ahava is not emotion, it's devotion. And what Moses is calling the Israelites to is devotion to the one true God. Be loyal and be obedient to God alone. And then Moses goes on to use three other words to expand ahavah even more. In the English, the words are usually translated as heart, soul, and strength. But let me show you what they are in Hebrew. The first word is this one. It's the word levav. Levav. Levav is the word that uh, typically gets translated as heart. And here in the West, uh, we, we talk a lot about the heart and what we mean is, again, feeling, right? Uh, and we would distinguish between our hearts and our minds, the heart being you know, the feeling center of the body and the mind being the intellectual center of the body. And so we might say something like, he was thinking with his heart and not with his mind. And what we mean when we say that is he he responded out of emotion, but he didn't really think it through. That's how we kind of differentiate between heart and mind. But lavav has a, a broader meaning than simply feeling, okay? It's not just what we think of when we think of the heart. It has as much to do with the mind as it does with the heart. Lavav is understanding, it's thought, it's consideration. And so, when you read the word heart in the Old Testament, you should think of it in terms of intellect as well as emotions. The second word that we find in the Shema is the word nephesh, and nephesh is the word that is translated into English as soul. But it really has to do with the entirety of your life. Nephesh is the understanding that as long as there is breath in my lungs and strength in my bones, I'm going to use those things to love God. I'm going to pour out all of, all of my strength, all of my soul in the pursuit of God. But there's another aspect to Nephesh as well. And it's the idea of being willing to lay your life down as a sacrifice for God. Many Jewish people have spoken the Shema with their dying breath as a final commitment to God. And again, Verberg talks about in her book, she shares a story of another rabbi, a man named Rabbi Akiva who lived in the first century and he was publicly tortured to death by the Romans for teaching the Torah. And so they're in the public square, the Romans are are doing their cruel work to this man and there are people all around watching it happen. But as they're torturing him, he doesn't cry out. Instead, he begins reciting the Shema. And some of his disciples were nearby, and they heard this happening. And they cried out to their rabbi, and they said, Rabbi, even now, you're going to re- recite the Shema even now? And the, re- the rabbi responded with this. He said, all my life, I have wondered if I would ever have the privilege to love God with all my nefesh. And now that the opportunity has come, shall I not grasp it with joy? Loving God with your very life, even to the point of laying your life down for him. That's Nefesh. One more word and uh, we often read it in the English as strength or might, but the Hebrew word is this one. It's the word Me'od. And miod is perhaps the most curious of all three of these words because outside of the Shema, it's never used as a noun. It's always used as an adverb. Miod literally translates to the word very. Uh, Let me give you one example of that. Many of you will be familiar with the Genesis account where God creates everything, and then at the end of creation, he stands back and he doesn't just declare it good, which is the Hebrew word tov. He declares it tov miod, very good. And that's how this word is used throughout the Old Testament, except in the Shema. It's used as a noun in the Shema. And so if you were to literally translate the Shema into English, you would, it would say, love the Lord your God with all your very and that doesn't seem to make sense to us, right? Think about sending uh, that special someone a, a Valentine's Day card that says, I love you with all my very. And they'd be like, you're nuts. I'm finding somebody else, right? But, but he, here's what scholars... Um, have, have come to understand. Here's how scholars have explained the use of this word in Deuteronomy 6. One understanding is that miode is used to describe a person's strength, and we read it that way sometimes. It's like giving it everything you got. Give it your very, give it your very best, give it all that you've got, all your strength. Another thought is that it refers to consciousness, And specifically like a determination of mind. I'm going to do this. It's being determined in your mind. And this is likely why when we see this passage show up in the New Testament, we find four words instead of only three. We find heart, soul, mind, and strength. And those last two are the Greeks' attempt to capture all of the aspects of the Hebrew miod, mind and strength. One more thought is that it also includes our possessions. So that would be just everything that we own, using all that we have to love God. So this is how Moses says we're to love the Lord our God with all our levav, all of our thoughts, all of our consideration, all of our intellect with all of our nephesh, our, our very lives, even being willing to lay our life down for him, if that's what it takes. And all our miode, all of our very, our might, our strength, our determination, heart, mind, and strength, everything we are, everything we have, all of our lives poured into Ahava, loyalty, covenant, commitment, and obedience to God this is what the Shema requires. And it wasn't just a command for Israel then. It's actually still a command for followers of Jesus now. In fact, uh, like I mentioned a moment ago, the Shema shows up again in the New Testament and it shows up in a very significant place Mark records it in his gospel in Mark chapter 12. I want to invite you to turn there if you've got your Bible with you. Uh, but just to set this up, in Mark 12, a group of religious leaders have come to ask Jesus some questions, but they aren't actually coming to learn anything. They're hoping to trap him, they're hoping to get him to say something uh, that they can use against him, because quite honestly, they want him to shut up. They want to get him out of Israel. He is causing too many problems. And so they come to him and they ask him a series of questions and one of them asks him, Teacher, what is the most important commandment? Now think about this. There are over 600 commands given in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, the books that we've read so far. Over 600 commandments given. And the religious leaders are asking Jesus to elevate one command above all of the others. But how could you possibly pick one without devaluing all of the others? And if he picks one, then they can say, see, he he doesn't think that these are all important. He just thinks this is the one and, and the rest of them don't matter. But here's how Jesus responds. It's brilliant. Here's what he says. He says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Out of over 600 commands, Jesus picked the Shema as the most important one. And why did he do that? Well, because he knew that this is the command from which all the others flow. It shows us the very heart of what it means to to follow after God. And you could do everything else right. You could perform all of the other commands perfectly. Well, you can't, but if you could, and you got this one wrong, it would amount to nothing. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because it shows us how to do all the others. And maybe you're hearing this this morning. And you're thinking, okay, well, then this is what I need to do. I need to start putting this into practice. I need to start applying the Shema in every area of my life. And I know I've done some stuff that does not line up with the Shema. So I just, I need to do better. That's how I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to do the Shema and I'm going to do it better. Well, here's the, here's the kicker of this whole thing. You can't do this. Okay, you, you can't do this. And neither can I, not perfectly. Like Even on my best days, I fail miserably at the Shema, and so do you. And the reality is, I'm not as bad as I once was, but I'm as bad once as I ever was. That's Toby Keith, if you didn't know. Anyway, the Shema, as good as it is, As beautiful as it is, as important as it is, it's still a part of the law. And what we know about the law is that it does a really good job of showing us what we should do. It does virtually nothing to actually help us do it. And that's a problem because God requires our absolute obedience. Anything less than absolute obedience is what he calls sin. And we read in his word that the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve for your disobedience. That's what I deserve for my disobedience. We have a death problem, and we we all fall short in this. We fall short of loving God with all of our heart and our mind and our strength, and it leads to death. But here's the good news. Christ performed the Shema perfectly, and then he laid his perfect life down as a payment for our sins And then he was raised back to life, defeating death. And now he actually offers to credit his perfect performance of the Shema to us. All we have to do is receive it. All we have to do is receive it as a gift from him. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter three about this. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That means you can't do enough good stuff to negate the bad stuff that you've already done. A a lot of people think that's how it works, that you get to the end of your life, and if you did enough good and it outweighs the bad, then you'll be good to go. And they put all of their hope on, well, I hope I did enough good stuff and, and God will accept me. Paul says, no, that is not how this works. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight but by works. Rather, he says... Through the law, we became conscious of our sin. This is what I was talking about before. This is what the law does. It doesn't actually help us towards salvation. It just is supposed to open up our eyes to the reality of our sin problem. We are headed for death and for hell. That's what the law shows us. So what do we do about it? Well, Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And this righteousness is that to which the law and the prophets testified. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That means that salvation is not something you earn. You don't obey yourself into salvation. It's it's something you receive as a gift. It's given to anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ. We don't listen and obey in order to be saved But God has graciously saved us, and therefore it is our joy to listen and obey, and we make it our goal to please him in every area of our life, heart, soul, strength, all of it. And some of you genuinely want to please God. I wholeheartedly believe that. that that you are hoping that the things you do will please God and that you'll stand before him one day and and that 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 scale will be tipped because you did enough to please God and then he will let you into his heaven. And I'm just, I'm here desperately today telling you that that is not how this is gonna play out. God's word couldn't be any clearer. Your good works count for nothing, zero. Quit trying to earn God's favor. You can't do it. But he has made a way. He has said that that if you obey his commands, if you follow his son Jesus, that he will give you that righteousness for free. And that obeying his commands is what comes after as a response to it. Obeying God means doing things his way. And Acts 2.38 tells us his way. It says repent and be baptized. Acts 2.38 in chapter 2, Peter is preaching the gospel to a a large crowd. And and it says that they were cut to the heart by the things that he said. And they say, say, Peter, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Repenting means turning away from sin and turning toward God. When we talk about repentance and we talk about putting your faith in Christ, I want you to know those are synonymous acts. Just like in the video, they're they're two sides of the same coin. You can't turn away from something without turning toward something else. And so you turn away from your sin, you turn toward Christ, you put your faith in Christ. And when you do that, his righteousness is immediately credited to your account. You become a child of God, your sin debt is canceled. And if you have never done that, today is the day that you need to do it. Today's the day. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You are not guaranteed next week. Scripture says today is the day of salvation, and you can put your faith in Jesus today, and you can walk out of here a different person. I would love to talk with you more about that to help you take that step. So would Steve, or if you have a trusted Christian friend, go to him and just tell him, I'm ready to make that kind of a step. But once we've received God's free gift through faith, the next step is to respond to the gift through baptism. We receive the gift, and then we respond to the gift. Baptism is going public with your faith. Your new life with Christ begins with baptism, not because baptism saves you, but because it was intended to be an initial act of obedience. Remember, Shema means listen and obey. And and this is emphasized throughout the New Testament, but one of the places is in 1 John 5, 3, where John tells us this is love for God. Okay, You don't have to make it up for yourself. You don't have to define how you love God. God has told us in his word, this is love for God to keep his commands. That's how you love him. You do what he commands. And the difficult reality is that there are likely a number of you here today who have received the gift in faith, but never responded in obedience. You have, you have received the gift that God has offered, but you have never responded in obedience to Christ's command to be baptized. And I'm sure there is many reasons as to why that is as there are people in the room today. But listen to me. If, the bottom line is this. If you have said yes to Jesus as the Lord of your life, and then said no to baptism, who is really the Lord of your life? And I'm not trying to make this more than what it is. Okay, the water doesn't save you. There's nothing magical about the water. It's just normal, plain old water. But just like I'm not going to make it more than it is, I'm asking you not to make it less than what it is. And what it is is a call to obedience to the one who you call Lord. It's coming before your church. It's a joyful proclamation that that you belong to God, that you want to love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And we're gonna be celebrating that at all of our Easter services this year. We're gonna be celebrating baptisms at all of those services. If you have recently put your faith in Christ, Uh, or even if it was a long time ago, but you've never responded through baptism, this is your next step. I want you to go to genesischurch.me online or open up the Genesis app, and I want you to get signed up for a baptism class. We ask that if you're going to be baptized at Genesis that you go through a a class where we can answer any questions you might have about baptism. We can make sure that you're ready for that day and that you've got everything you need. And we're going to be offering a a couple of different classes. One of them is a Zoom class. You don't even have to, to be here for it. We've made it as easy as possible for you to take this initial step of obedience to the Lord. But that's what it is. It's just a simple first step towards showing God that you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. I hope you'll take that step. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ who perfectly performed the Shema. And he did it out of humble obedience for you. He did it because... He loved us. He did it because he knew that the way to save humanity from sin and death was for him to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to lay his life down and to credit his righteousness to us. God, thank you that in Christ we can find the forgiveness for our sins, that we can find hope, and, Father, that we can respond to you joyfully, In love, Father, in Ahava, loyal, obedient commitment to you. It's not a burden. It's not a burden, God. It is our joy. It is our goal in life to please you. So guide us in this by your spirit. That we would pour all of our lavav, we would use all of our heart, all of our intellect, God, to love you. That we would use all of our nefesh, our soul, our very lives. To worship you and to adore you and to be committed to you. And all of our meode, God, all of our very, our might, our strength poured into loving you. Thank you, God, for first loving us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray this morning. Amen.